you would please and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15. This morning I want to talk to you about the joy that ought to be a part of every Christian's life. I have to be honest with you, as we look around even churches today, but especially around the world, we don't see very much joy on the faces of people. People have all the pressures that are put on them. There are economic pressures. The government has us on a terror alert just about every day. Our schools don't educate our children anymore. And we just have all kinds of problems and pressures that we have to go through. And that doesn't leave us being very joyful people. And then on top of that, you come to church and you have all the pressures that are put on you from the outside. And then you come to church and there are these pressures of uniformity, trying to look like everybody else, do like everybody else. And we just don't have very many happy people today. Not much joy we find on people's faces. In fact, I mentioned this before, that a lot of times when people come to church, the look that they have on their face is somewhere between acid indigestion and a migraine headache. And that's what a lot of people look like today. And, and we, we sing this song. You remember the song we sang as kids? I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. And we sing it like I've got joy, joy, joy down in my heart. And there's just not a lot of joy in the world today. Maybe you remember that little story about the, about the wife and her husband that just seemed like they really hated one another. They argued all the time. They couldn't get along with one another. And the only person that this man hated more than his wife was his mother-in-law. They sat down one day and they were going to make out their will. And the wife says to her husband, Now I want you to promise me that you'll do one thing when I die. Just do this one thing for me. She said, Will you promise me that you will ride in the car behind the hearse with my mother as they take me to the, to the graveyard? And her husband said, well, I suppose that I could do that one thing for you, but it'll sure take the joy out of the ride. (laughs) Well, a lot of people think like that, don't they? I want to talk about joy today. And Jesus gives us a prescription for joy in these first 11 verses of chapter 15. And the secret is actually a word that we find here that's used nine times in these 11 verses. Eight times it's translated as abide and The last time, it's translated as the word remain. And so this word, really, it's the same key word that we used in our lesson or our sermon last week. It's the word abide. Now, today, I'd like for us to start in verse number 11, where Jesus talks about joy. I'd like you to stand with me, please, in reverence for the reading of God's word. And we'll look at John chapter 15. Let's start with verse number 11. Here, Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Now, notice that Jesus says there, these things I have spoken unto you. What things? Well, they're the things that he talked about in the first 10 verses of the chapter. So let's go back up there to verse number 1, if you would, please, and let's see what Jesus says about joy and abiding in him. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and notice the word, abide. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me." I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, 
He has cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Now notice once again, verse number 11. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word today. Thank you for your precious word that teaches us so much about you and how that we can have life and salvation in Jesus Christ. Bless in the message today. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today I'd like to talk to you about three lessons that we can learn from these scriptures that will help us to have the joy that Jesus speaks of. In these three lessons, there are also some key principles that are involved, and that's what I want to speak to you about today. Did you know that it's actually possible for you to have joy when things aren't going very well? When things are going wrong in your life, the Bible teaches us that there is a way that we can actually have joy. As Jesus was speaking to these disciples, he said that they could have joy even though it was just a few hours before Jesus would go to the cross. You remember that these words were some of the last words that Jesus spoke. Only hours will transpire before Jesus is crucified. And yet, as Jesus was taken from them, he was going to be taken away from them and crucified. And in that frightening, excruciating death that Jesus would die, those disciples knew that this could be their death also. If they continued to follow Christ, they may even die as he died. And yet Jesus said to them, my joy will remain in you. Now the overall key to the passage, as I've stated, is the word abide or to remain. There's something for us to abide in. So let's talk about these lessons that we learn from abiding and the principles that are involved that will bring us the joy that Jesus speaks of. Now first today, let's talk about fruit. Because the Bible is showing us here that if you abide in Jesus, you will abound in his fruit And that fruit of Jesus will cause joy to be in your life. Now, I want to go back. I want to go back for just a moment to some things that we considered in last week's sermon. Do you remember the symbols that Jesus gave us in these scriptures? Jesus speaks about fruit. And I pointed out to you that fruit is actually the character of Jesus. Having fruit in your life means that you have the character of Jesus reproduced in you. But it's not possible, if you remember, it's not possible to have the character of Jesus simply by pure imitation. If you try to live like Jesus and do what Jesus did, and you try to do that in the energy of your own flesh and your own strength, you'll find out you won't be fruitful at all, but you'll be fruitless. Now, I believe that what Jesus is trying to show us here, that just as it is impossible for you to bear fruit of yourself, It is just as impossible for you to bear fruit of yourself as it is for a branch that's broken off from the vine to bear grapes or to bear apples, whatever the fruit might be. It's impossible if that branch is not attached to the vine for it to bear fruit. It will not produce fruit. And so the secret of this, producing the fruit, is to abide in the vine. The secret is the Holy Spirit in our lives surrendering to the will of God so that we might bear the fruit that Christ would have us bear. 
It's the character of Christ in us. Another symbol that we discussed was the gardener. In this passage, the King James Version calls him the husbandman. And Jesus says that his father is the husbandman. And the husbandman or the father, it's his job to prune the branches. And he's the one who actually holds the key to our fruitfulness. Now, there's a key principle that's involved in that. The key principle is you must submit to his pruning. Now, let's look at verse number 2 again. It says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So this is what the Father does. He prunes the vine. He purges the vine. And we have to submit to that process if we expect to be fruitful and to have the character of Jesus. Last week, you remember, we talked about two different types of branches that may be on this vine and have to be pruned. And one of these branches is a branch that's superficially attached. It's not really a part of the vine. It bears no real fruit. And the superficial branches, I think the Bible is showing us, are false disciples. They look like the real thing but they have no real attachment to Jesus. Judas was a superficial disciple. He looked like the other disciples. He did the same things that the other disciples did. And in our church today, we find that we also have people who attend and who may even be members of the church, but they're superficially attached. They never bear any fruit. And that shows us that they're not real disciples of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is telling us that all people that are in that condition, that God is eventually going to cut all of them away. But then there's another branch. And this is a branch that does bear fruit. It does abide in the vine. But to be more fruitful, what the Father has to do with that is to cut some things away. Now, I have to be totally honest with you today that as Christians, when we go through the pruning process, it's not fun. Very often, we don't like to be pruned. We don't enjoy pruning because in that process, the Father is cutting away some things in our lives that we don't want to get rid of. There are things here that we really like. And yet, the Bible tells us, Jesus says, these things have to be cut away. And the reason that Jesus does that, the Father does it, so that we might be more fruitful to bear more fruit. Now, what kinds of things does the Father cut away from our lives? Well, let me give you an example. Let me give you three examples of the pruning process. Number one, he cuts away past commitments. One of the things that the Father does is cut away all the past commitments that you've made. And do you know there are a lot of Christians who rely upon things that they did in the past? There are a lot of Christians who are used to be Christians. They say, Pastor, let me tell you about what I used to do. I used to be faithful to the church. I used to attend all of the services. I used to volunteer for nearly everything that went on. I used to work in the Sunday school. I worked with the children. I used to go out on visitation. And they talk about this whole list of things that they used to do. Well, there's one thing that you need to know about the Lord's work is God is not interested in what you did in the past. God's not interested in last year's fruit. Last year's fruit is no good to God. Now, there is no such thing as spiritual retirement. There's no such thing as a person sitting back and resting upon his laurels and the things that he used to do because God says he's going to cut all of those things away. And yet that's what many people rely upon. Folks, you don't want to live in the past. 
Last year's crop is no good. Last year's crop has already been harvested. It's worthless now. And if you try to live in what you did in the past and all the things you did for the church way back then, you'll find out that you'll become old, you'll become stale, and you'll be worthless to the cause of Christ. The past is a great place for you to visit, but it's a terrible place for you to live. God's not interested in last year. God wants to know, what are you doing for me right now? And so God cuts away past accomplishments and last year's commitments. This, this, this part really isn't, this really isn't a part of my sermon, but I thought that I might add this in because it kind of ties in. It's not a part of the message, but you know there are also some Christians who are planned to be Christians. Plan, plan to do something for the Lord. They're always coming to tell you, this is what I'm going to do, and I want to get involved in this, but they never actually do get involved. They never come to that place where they, their plans are fulfilled, where they do anything for the Lord. God's not interested in that either. Now, the second thing that the Father does, he cuts away present competition. And that means that he cuts away things that compete with your fruitfulness. I wouldn't consider myself to be a gardener. I really don't know a lot about gardens and raising a garden, but there's one thing I do know. Sometimes there are things in a plant or that are on a plant that compete with the ability of that plant to produce fruit. When a gardener goes out to hoe the garden, what does he do? He cuts the weeds out. He, he tears out all the weeds because they compete with the plant. They take nutrients out of the soil that d- need to go to the plant so it might grow. Another thing that a gardener does, he looks for insects. He looks for certain growths that might be on the plant. And those things need to be removed because they eat the fruit or they may destroy the plant. Anybody here grow tomatoes? No, Brother Les back there grows tomatoes. You know, sometimes, I I don't know a whole lot about this either. These are just things that I read about. But I understand that a tomato plant will produce suckers. Is that right, Brother Les? A sucker. A sucker is a, is a branch off of the main branch that competes with the branches where the fruit are. And so what you want to do, what the gardener wants to do is get rid of those suckers, cut off the suckers, because they take away the vitality of the plant. They take away nutrients that ought to go into the fruit. And so what you have to do, you just got to get rid of those suckers. Now, as I said, I, I don't really know a lot about gardening, but I'm from Kentucky, and I know a little bit about Kentucky's main crop. If you know something about Kentucky, they grow a lot of tobacco in, in Kentucky. And one of the problems with tobacco is this green worm that's about a quarter of an inch in diameter and about three or four inches long, and it's called a tobacco worm. And an infestation of tobacco worms can destroy a tobacco crop. Now, if I got a, can you go at the picture of the tobacco worm up here? What a farmer will do if he's growing tobacco is he'll get a pail, and this is the way they used to do it. Maybe they've got another modern method of doing it now. I don't know. But they would go through rows and rows and rows and acres of acres of tobacco, and they'd pull off that green worm, and the farmer would, be, would have a pail in his hand, and he'd drop that tobacco worm into the pail. Sometimes there would be a solution of lye and water, and that, that lye would kill that tobacco worm. Sometimes he would wait till he got down to the end of the row and he'd douse that bucket after he got it full of kerosene and he'd light the kerosene and then he would kill the worms. But you know, I knew some farmers that they didn't really like to carry that bucket around and so they'd walk down through the rows of tobacco and they'd pull off that worm and they'd bite his head off and they'd just toss the worm aside onto the ground and it would be dead. 
Well, the purpose of all of that, that's right before dinner. I know that's good for you. The purpose of all that is to remove the competition because that keeps the plant from growing like he wants. Now, now this is what God does in your life. God will cut away some things out of your life that cause you to be unfruitful. Now, there are a lot of things that compete with your time, for instance. Things compete with your time. You say, well, I just don't have time to serve God. Well, God may cut away some of those things. You may have a job, for instance, that keeps you out of God's service. And you're always talking about that job and how you're so busy. And and you just can't do anything for the Lord. God can take that job away from you. Did you know that? God can cut away that kind of competition. Some of you may like to recreate on Sunday. Your God's not Jehovah God. It's the recreation God. And you like to spend Sundays doing other things than being in church and serving the Lord. Did you know this as well, that God can cut that out of your life? Did you know that God can put you flat on your back so that you have a lot of time to contemplate how you didn't spend time for him? God cuts away the competition. Things that compete with a Christian being fruitful. Another thing God cuts away, number three, he cuts away personal capabilities. Now, I like to think of personal capabilities like things in a plant that are simply produced for show. They really don't have any value. They don't produce anything good for the plant. Now, let me go back to the tobacco plant for just a moment. Many people don't know that a tobacco plant produces a flower. But you don't see that flower for very long because as soon as it appears, the farmer goes and cuts it off. You know why he does that? Because the bloom on the tobacco plant takes away the vitality of the plant. All of the vitality goes into making that beautiful bloom. But that's not what the farmer wants. He wants a nice green leaf. That'll kill you. That's what he really wants. And so he, he, he makes sure he cuts off that bloom so that, so that it doesn't take away the, the vitality from the leaves. Now, you might think, why in the world, Pastor, are you talking about tobacco crops today? I'm just going with what I know. That's what I'm used to. And those blooms are just like your works. These are things that you do in the energy of the flesh. They don't contribute anything to the Lord. All they do is say who you are and point out who you are to people. You know, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the ones that were most notorious for this. I mean, these were people who so meticulously kept the law, they wanted to be sure everybody knew just how holy and righteous that they were. Jesus talked about that. He said, that's no good for us. And in Matthew chapter 23, he said, but all their works, speaking of the Pharisees, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Phylacteries were little leather pouches that they would bind on their arms or on their foreheads. And in those pouches, they would write little scriptures. They would write parts of the law and they'd put them in that leather pouch and keep that. And that showed that they were keepers of God's law. He says they enlarged the borders of their garments and they would do that sometimes in order to write the law of God even on their clothing. Jesus said, that's not what I'm looking for. I don't want to see you in all of this. He goes on and he says, and they love the uppermost rooms at the feast and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, rabbi, rabbi. These are works that are done in the flesh. Everything that they did was for show. And there are lots of Christians who do the very same thing. They parade themselves around. Look at me. Look what I've done for the Lord. Use my example. See what I do. You know, I've seen many deacons 
that instead of being humble servants of the Lord, they've decided at some point or another they need to run the church. And so they get up front and they show everybody what they can do. I've seen pastors who love to have their names up in the bright lights. Their names have to be on the marquees. And so instead of serving in the church where God has called them and preaching to the local congregation, they've got to have their name in bright lights on the seminars and, and the conferences that are taking place all across the country. And you know what God says? He says, I'm going to cut all of that away. And you know why he does that? Because first of all, it's all for his glory and not for ours. First of all, he cuts all those things out that point to us and how good we are. He says, get rid of those things. It's not your glory. It's my glory that people need to see. But the second reason that he does it is that you might be fruitful. Now, you see what God wants to do. He wants you to get into heaven. He wants to reward you for the things that you have done in his service, in his strength, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to reward you for those things. But as I spoke last week, some of you are going to show up at the pearly gates dragging all of your good works with you. And God's going to say to the angels, take it out, burn it up, because it's no good for us. It's no good because those works are done in the energy of the flesh. All of the things that you do for yourself in your own energy are useless for fruit bearing. Now, what should be the reaction to the pruning process? Well, Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Pruning is not fun. Cutting away all the things that you like, all the things that you put your focus on, it's not fun. It's not joyous. It's grievous, the Word of God says. But it also says when this pruning process is over, it yields much better fruit. Now, if you've experienced that in your life, if you're a Christian, if you've experienced, what did the pruning process do for you? Made you a stronger Christian, didn't it? It made you able to withstand the next trial that comes along. God cut away all those things that were an influence on you. He got rid of all of those things. He got rid of your works and all the good things that you think that you do. And you became a stronger Christian because of it. God knows how to prune. And a good gardener knows how much he can prune. You know, usually in the late summertime, the people who do uh, the gardening at our house... They come back in the, in the late summer and they cut down or they trim up all of the plants that we have in our yard. And we, we have some really fast-growing plants. There's some on the front side of the house that by the time the summer's over, they've grown up all the way up to the second-story windows. Now, when the gardener came the first time, when he came that first time, I didn't know what he was going to do. I, I just left the house. I was on my way to church. But I came back later in the day and I saw all of these plants look like they were butchered to me. I mean, it looked like he destroyed everything that was in the yard. Those plants that were 15 feet high in the front, he cut them back to four feet. And I thought, these plants are going to die. But you know what happened? It wasn't very long before new sprouts came out, new buds came on the plants, and those plants came back bigger, fuller, and better than ever before. You see, sometimes that's what God has to do with your life. He has to cut you down to size. And he makes you realize who you are and who he is. So what do we need to do? Just abide in the vine. Submit to the pruning process. Abide in him and the fruit will abound. 
Jesus says in verse number 5, I am the vine, and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Now we go on to the second lesson that we learn here today. Lesson number two is about the Word. And as we think about the Word, if you abide in God's Word, you will adjust to God's will. Now let's look at verse number seven again. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Do you know one of the greatest joys that we have in the Christian life? One of our greatest joys is to be in such intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ that you can speak with him, you can talk with him, you can ask him for things that you want, and Jesus gives you those things. Back in John chapter 14, Jesus talked about prayer. And you remember that he told the disciples that if they would ask anything in his name, that he would do it. And what he meant by that is if you acknowledge that I'm the one that you need to come to God through, if you acknowledge that I'm the only way that you can get to God, it's me and me alone, then God will answer your, prayer, will answer your prayers. Well, verse number seven here in our text today is also a prayer promise. And this tells us exactly how we can have the joy of a meaningful talk with God. We can speak with God in a very meaningful way. Now, here's the key principle to this. The key principle is you must surrender to his word. When you surrender to the word of God, you will abide in Christ and you will adjust your will to God's will. One of the greatest lessons that I ever learned about prayer was reading what Arthur Pink had to say. Now, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, we don't pray to move God. We pray to move us. When we pray properly, we don't pray to get what we want. We pray to get what God wants for us. Now, here's something you need to understand. Prayer for a Christian is not an automatic thing. It's not like you just decide, well, I need something. I'll go to God. He's listening, and God's going to come. He's going to swoop down. He's going to take care of everything that I need. He's at my beck and call, and all I have to do is just say the word, and God will be here. It's not like that. There are conditions for God to answer your prayers. And let's talk about that for just a minute. What are some of the conditions that are placed upon prayer? Number one is that you must be in the right relationship. You have to be in a right relationship with God. Verse 7 says you have to continually abide in Christ and his word has to abide in you. Well, what does that mean? Well, what it means is you can't be stubborn and rebellious about what God has already revealed in his word. You can't say, I won't do that, God. I'm not going to do those things. I mean, God's already revealed this in your word and you can't expect to get good things from God if you're in a wrong relationship with him. And by I mean that, I'm talking about saved people right now. I'm talking about being in a place where you're doing what God wants you to do so that you can receive his greatest blessing. And we all understand that principle. When my children were little and they disobeyed me, what did I do? I withheld things from them until they learned how to do what I told them to do. I still loved them. They were still my children. But they could forget about getting good things from me until they learned to obey, until they learned to do what they're supposed to do. Now, some of you parents need to learn that lesson yourself. You know, when a child whines and cries, what do you do? Some of you give them what they want just to shut them up. You're tired of listening to all the whining and crying. God's not like that. You can whine and cry all you want to cry. But until you come into conformity with obedience to his word, 
He's not going to give you an answer. You know, I've known Christians who have been in adulterous relationships. They're disobeying God. And they wonder, why is it that God doesn't bend over backwards to give me what I want? Why doesn't God make me happy? Why doesn't he supply everything that I need? And they haven't understood the principle, this requirement that God requires obedience for answered prayer. Now, we read a scripture last week. Do you remember? 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. John said, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. And do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So get in a right relationship and you'll have the joy of speaking with Jesus and getting answered prayers. Jesus said in our text verse in verse 3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. The second requirement, second thing you need to do is to make the right request. Start by asking for what God wants and not what you want. You see, when you pray properly, you don't get what you want. You get what Jesus wants you to have. Now, let's go back to John 14 for just a moment. Verse number 13. Jesus said, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, let me illustrate this for you if I could. I have a check here today. This is an actual check. It's from my wife and, 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 and my checking account. I mean, it's got our names on it. It's official check. The bank will honor this. And this is a blank check. I've made it out to Brian Petro. My wife's panicking right now. But I made a blank check out to Brian Petro. Brian, can you tell me what's wrong with that check? Well, somebody hasn't signed it. Oh, it hasn't been signed. I'm not as stupid as I look. <laughs> The check hasn't been signed. And you know that there are some people, this is what they're trying to do. They're going to God with a check that hasn't been signed. Now, I have another check here today. This is also made out to Brian Petro, and it's a blank check. And this one, I have signed my name. That's right. M-Y-N-A-M-E. That's what I wrote here. Don't, so you don't need to panic at all. I've got everything under control. But here, here's the principle, what I'm trying to get you to see is that some of you, I mean, God has given you a blank check. He said you can ask for anything that you want. But you're going to God with things that Jesus will not sign his name to. And if you're going to get things from God, you've got to ask for things that Jesus is willing to sign his name to. Now, here's what the psalmist said. He said, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. That's a great verse, isn't it? God will give us the desires of our heart. You know, there's some people who really don't understand that. Some people in the Christian world today don't understand what that verse is all about. How many of you have ever heard of the Word of Faith movement? Am I speaking to people? Some of you have heard of the Word of Faith movement. The Word of Faith movement, the major proponents of that are Joyce Meyer. You heard that name before? Joel Osteen, Kenneth Hagin, Benny Hinn. Heard of those folks? They're in the Word of Faith movement. And the Word of Faith movement has a theology that's called name it and claim it. If you're a Christian, you can name it and claim it. Whatever it is, you name it and you claim it. If you want to be wealthy, name it and claim it. I like what one author said. He called Joel Osteen's theology not name it and claim it, but blab it and grab it. Can you just name it and claim it? 
You know, I don't have time to go into all that today, but I'll tell you this much. If you name it and you try to claim it, you better be sure that it's something that Jesus has already named. It's not your job to try to convince Jesus to give you anything. It's your job to adjust to his will, and then he'll give you the things that you need. Third thing you have to do for answered prayer, to speak to God in a meaningful way, ask for the right reasons. Now, of course, there's a universe of things that God can do that we can't do, and one of the things that God can do is that he can look directly into your heart and he can see all of your motives. And you might convince yourself that the real reason is not actually the real reason, but God knows what the real reason is. He knows why you're asking what you ask. I mean, didn't Jesus say, didn't Jesus say, your father knoweth what things you have need of even before you ask him? How do you think that you could ever come to God and pull one over on him? How could you ever make him think that the reason that you're asking for is not the real reason? God knows what the real reasons are. And do and you know that this is a huge problem? James said it's a problem because we're praying in the wrong way. And he said in James 4 verse 3, Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. If your motive is selfish, you're not asking God for the right reasons. Now, you see, this is all part of surrendering to God's word. This is how you have closeness and intimacy with God. If you want to pray and speak to God and ask him for things, just like you talk friend to friend, then let me tell you something. Get with the program of God's word. Be pliable. Be bent into the shape of God's will and not your own. Now, I have one last lesson about joy and abiding in Christ. Now, probably many other lessons that we could learn today, but this lesson is about love. If you abide, you will achieve. If you want to achieve the joy that Jesus speaks of in verse number 11, Jesus says you have to abide in his love. Now, this is in verse number 9. It says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. How do we continue in his love? He gives the answer in verse 10. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So the key to experiencing the joy of Jesus is to remain or to abide in his love. Now that begs an obvious question. If you're thinking today, and I hope that you are as I preach the sermon, if you're thinking, then does this mean that God says, I have to keep a list of commandments And if I don't keep all of these commandments, then I'm no longer in the love of God. Am I in danger as a Christian of God canceling his love for me when I sin? And do you know there are some people who think so? There are many people who believe that salvation is God doing his part and you doing your part. And if you don't do your part, then God takes salvation away from you. Now, do you see the fallacy here? This this is true even in our faith that we, to, to faith to believe in Jesus. Some say it's God's part and man's part. God's part is to do, is to send the sacrifice and your part is to have the faith. And that's the part that you have in salvation. But the Bible teaches us that even our faith is a gift from God. And if you believe that salvation is God doing his part and you doing your part, then the obvious conclusion is, if I stop doing my part, then God takes my salvation away from me. But that's not what Jesus teaches at all. Jude helps us to understand this a little bit better. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. And he said, keep yourselves 
in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, here's the key principle that we learn. You must stay in his circle. There's a circle in which you benefit from the blessings of Christ's love. See, you can be God's child, and you can choose to walk outside of the circle of God's love. It's possible for you to do that. The blessings flow inside of that circle. Now, Jesus tells us here, as he does so many other times in the book of John and other places, that to have joy in our lives, that means to know and to experience God's love, which once again is revealed through our obedience. Now, here's one thing that we'll learn in these, in these last chapters where Jesus is giving his last teachings to his disciples. He goes over and over and over these themes, themes again and again. He wants to make sure his disciples very clearly understands this before he leaves this world. So you can step out of God's circle. God still loves you, but you won't experience the enjoyment of his love. Now that brings us once again back down to verse number 11. And we notice in verse number 11 that Jesus calls this my joy. What is the joy of Jesus? Did you know that there aren't actually very many Bible passages that connect Jesus with joy? Jesus was called a man of sorrows, and often he's connected with sorrow. Three times in the scriptures we read about Jesus weeping. We've never seen in scripture that Jesus laughed. I believe that he probably did, but there aren't any scriptures to tell us that. But we do have another verse of scripture about joy concerning Jesus, and this is not at all what we would expect. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher for our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of Jesus was right on the other side of his suffering. He completely surrendered himself to the Father's will. He was abiding in the love of the Father because he came and did everything that the Father required him to do. And as Jesus looked at the sorrow of the cross, and as he looked at the shame of the cross, he saw that his joy was right on the other side. And his joy was to sit down with his father once again in glory at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, do you see, friends, this is the very same thing that Jesus tells the disciples. There is a pruning process to go through. It's not fun. It may be grievous. But on the other side of that, he says, there's joy. Joy's not self-manufactured giddiness. Friends, joy is when you know that you're being used by God just as Jesus was used by God. Jesus knew that this was the Father's will, that he would go to the cross, he would die there, and he would pay for our sins. He knew there was joy on the other side. Someone has said that joy, J-O-Y, is an acronym for Jesus only, or Jesus rather, others, and you. Really, we ought to just shorten that and say, Jesus only, just Jesus only, because that's the whole picture. So I want to ask you this morning, is there something that Jesus has called you to do? The Bible is teaching us and Jesus is telling us that the pathway to joy is obedience. So maybe there's something that Jesus wants you to do today. Maybe he's spoken to you about baptism. You need to be baptized. 
And that's fulfilling your role of obedience to him because he commands that to be done. Maybe Jesus is saying to someone today, you need to be a member of his church. You need to be in a place where you can serve God, where, where you can fellowship with God's people and be of use in God's service. That's what we do in the church. We carry out the Lord's great commission here. Maybe there's someone today that Jesus is saying to you, get rid of the past commitments. Don't think about what you did last year. Don't sit and rest in that. But Jesus is saying to you right now, you need to get active. You need to get busy in the Lord's work. Maybe Jesus is saying that to you today. There's joy right on the other side of obedience. Abide in the vine. Stay in the word. Yield yourself to the will of the Holy Spirit. And you'll have the joy that Jesus speaks of in this passage. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word today. We thank you for Jesus Christ and the joy that can be ours as his character is reproduced in us. Lord, I ask you today to speak to some heart, move some heart today. That person who needs to come and profess faith in you, to tell folks that they've trusted you as their personal Savior, speak to that person today. Lord, I ask you that you might speak to those who need baptism, those who need church membership, those who need to get busy working for you. This is the most important thing in the world that we can ever do is to serve you in our local church and carry out the job that you've given us to do. Even as Jesus came to do the Father's will, so we want to do your will as the body of Christ. Lord, we ask you that you would bless in this invitation today. Speak to hearts and we'll give you the praise for all things done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we...